the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, I'm very pleased to be joined by the former FBI director, James Comey, who makes his debut as a thriller writer with Central Park West. Central Park West is a story of a US prosecutor called Nora Carlton, whose long-running mob case is curiously complicated when it crashes into a case that's being prosecuted just down the hall of the murder of disgraced former governor of New York. It's an engrossingly twisty thriller, and it's set in a world that the author knows all too well. James, welcome. What made you start to write fiction? Surprising move. Great to be with you. Thanks for the conversation. I, it started with pushing from the nonfiction editor who told me I could write narrative and dialogue well. I really ought to consider fiction. And I resisted at first. But the farther I got from the work of the FBI, the easier it became to think about the work. And so I finally gave in and decided to give it a try and found it harder than nonfiction, but addictive. And so now it's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> well, you're already grown up, certainly by the size of you. I hope not grow any more. Um, I mean, I'm always, anyone who writes a thriller, I've always wanted to ask this. This is very tightly plotted. It's very twisty. There's a lot of reverses and switchbacks in it. Are you an architect or a gardener? Are you someone who plotted this from beginning to end and then filled out the writing? Or did you just take a character or a story for a walk? It was plotted from the beginning, uh, mostly by my spouse, who has great story vision, and pitched the idea to me. And then we fleshed it out together, and I wrote a summary of the entire plot and a bio of the characters. And then once I'd gotten her feedback, then agreed upon the entire story and tried to figure out what to show, what to hide. Her pet peeve has long been, she's read a tremendous amount of fiction, writers who trick the reader. And so she and I were keen to not be tricky, but to tell a story that would hold people. And you know, obviously your wife's read a lot of thrillers. You, you, is that something you grew up reading? Is that, has that always been a background to your life? Who have you been infused by in the kind of thriller and mystery field? No, actually, I, the last thriller I could remember reading before I got fired was by Scott Turow in 1987, Presumed Innocent. And I read it just as I was becoming a federal prosecutor, and it lit me on fire. And I thought, that's the life I want to live. And I kind of got to live that life, but it made it very hard to read anything related to crime, terrorism, or espionage for the next 30 years. <laughs> and, and I think it, it's not that writers get it wrong. That never bothered me. It's just that I didn't want to fill my private time. I wanted to get away from the work. And my wife consumed a tremendous amount of it, but I couldn't watch it on TV or read it. And then after I got fired and was being nudged to try fiction, I intentionally went and read Jean Le Carré because I had read an article around the time of his death, I think, where he wrestled with how to make his work both real and interesting. And I knew that was going to be a challenge I would face. And I'm no Le Carré by any stretch, but that I read, I think... I may have read all of his books in sequence to get a sense of how a great person writes these things. 
Oh, it's a good model to have. It takes you, I mean, you've said, you know, you didn't want to be reading about the world you were actually in. This takes us back to the world you were in, doesn't it, in your early career. It's all set in the sort of, you know, Attorney General's office in New York, Southern District of New York. How much were you keen to kind of revisit that period? Is it, is it a time in your life that you look back on with fondness and nostalgia? As maybe you don't to some of your FBI period. <laughs> I don't to some more recent things. But I, I loved being a federal prosecutor in Manhattan. And I would have stayed there, but for the fact that my spouse loved to visit Manhattan, but not to live in New York. And so we moved away to keep a long, empty promise I had made to her. But the six years I spent there as a line prosecutor... And then we went back after September 11th, when I was asked to go back and be the chief federal prosecutor. Those two years, together, those eight are some of the best of my career. So it was fun to go back and relive the mob work I had done. But through a current lens, because my daughter's there, and when I was writing this, was the chief of the Violent and Organized Crime Unit in that same office. So I was able to, to be nostalgic, but also to write and think about it through the lens of somebody I love, one of my girls. Yeah, what is it? It's interesting you say that, I mean, I, I think it's in the, an early part of your memoir, A Higher Loyalty. You say, you know, the mafia, they operated in a certain way in the 80s and early 90s. And you said now they're just kind of a bunch of thugs. They've, the mafia, as it was, has disappeared. Have you kind of re- resurrected them for this book a little bit? A little bit, but I've tried to portray them the way I saw them as FBI director. And then my daughter, as the chief of the unit focused on it, described them to me. They're still there, lower visibility, in part because they have less power than they did, but also they've figured out that high visibility means long jail sentences. And so they're lower visibility, but persistent. And so I've tried to capture in the book both the way they were 20 years before the time of the book and the way they are now, and also tell a a good story. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think to... Lots of readers will, will seem startling, is, and, and I'm wondering how much that is from life, is the sort of relationship that's almost collegiate with the people who are trying to catch them. You've got this one character, Benny Dugan, who is a prosecutor, a police officer, who's well-respected by the mafia. And there's these codes saying, you know, you can't ever kill a law enforcement officer, you mustn't lie. You know, were they really like that? Did they really have that sort of relationship? Yes, and still do to a certain extent. The the mafia, I guess like all lines of work, tries to, to convince itself that it's engaged in work that has principle and meaning and purpose. And they do it through announcing that they follow a series of rules. And and most of it is nonsense. The, the one that they have long followed out of self-interest, not morality, is that they don't harm law enforcement. It's always been my favorite rule in the mafia. And it's because of the size of the state compared to the size of Cosa Nostra. They don't have such a rule in Sicily, where Cosa Nostra is much larger, obviously, compared to the state than it is in in America. And I remember a case in 1988, when a mob figure killed, maybe without even knowing this person was a federal agent, but killed a federal agent. And two hunts began in that moment hours, which I worked on, to find this killer. Gus Faraci was his name. And the mafia tried to find him. And they found him first and killed him on a street in Brooklyn, shot him in the face so he couldn't have an open casket at his funeral to send a signal to law enforcement that 
we won't tolerate this either. Again, not out of goodness of their hearts, because they realize that if the entire law enforcement structure of the New York area and the federal government comes down on them, it'll be a really bad thing. And so they really are these rules, most of them violated, honored only in the breach, the lying one in particular. But but the one that they stick to is not harming law enforcement. Yeah. Now, this character, you mentioned again in your memoir, he sounds very like, I think, Kenneth McCabe. Have you sort of paid tribute to McCabe in that? I've also seen like your lawyer has a thing of saying, Parker, he's called, I think. Tell, tell me your story. And that's how he gets people to open up. And there's another, I think it was Richard L. Cates, who's someone else you from your early years. I mean, was this a sort of tribute to put versions of these characters in? Yeah, I'm definitely. I'm trying to write what I know. And I know those institutions, but I also know really interesting, colorful people who make up those institutions. So yes, I tried to bring to life through Benny Dugan's character, my now dead beloved friend, Kenny McCabe, who was a great organized crime investigator. And so I was able to close my eyes with my fingers on my laptop and try to bring Kenny's voice into it. And I could hear him speaking to me as I wrote. And so I wrote in the acknowledgments to his family, it's fiction, but I hope you feel Kenny's spirit in these pages because he really was a six foot five inch, 250 pound piece of Brooklyn with a booming voice who never wore socks, but always wore an ankle holster with a gun. And I know it seems like a made up character, but I knew that person. And so I've tried to use him to be a, one of the pillars of the story. And there are some other details in the book that I think they must be from life. I mean, you describe, for instance, there's an FBI jet which has a Cleveland Browns logo still on it, weirdly, or there's like a papier-mâché sculpture in the hall of the courthouse that, that you know, hasn't been removed for 20 years because it's too administratively difficult. Are these real things? Yes. <laughs> I changed the identity of the football, the U.S. football team whose logo is stuck inside the FBI jet. It was another NFL team. But I tried to make it as real as possible. There were a couple of details. I had to move some physical locations so the bad guys wouldn't know about things that might hurt the FBI's work. But in the main, I've tried to make it as real as possible so that people can go there and feel it the way that I did. Yeah. Does it matter to get things right? I mean, I know... Ian M. Banks, the science fiction writer, was notorious for saying, you know, I don't do any research. Science fiction, I just make it up. Do you feel there's, there's a sort of value, particularly, I guess, coming from the experience you have in give, welcoming your reader into a world they won't know? I suppose I could, either way would be fine, but I've tried to make it as real as possible. I want to take the reader inside these places. And I also know that a lot of my friends will be reading it and will abuse me endlessly if I get a detail wrong <laughs> about these places and the procedures that I know so well. And it's more fun for me in my mind to go inside courtroom 318. I want to take the reader there, but I also want to go there in, in closing my eyes. And so the details matter in that respect. And I've tried to do that throughout the book. Now, you describe early on when Nora's your principal character, she's kind of getting dressed and she describes how every time she stands in court and says for the United States of America she gets a shiver and she's got this sort of dedication to an abstract purpose that is exciting to her is that your own experience I mean that feels like something that goes through your memoir at least very much I can remember certainly the first time I stood up and said that and it was in some 
what obviously it looks to me now as some tiny little case where I stood up and said my name and that I was representing the United States. I remember the feeling running up the, my spine. And I've asked my oldest daughter what her reaction was. She described the same feeling, standing up and saying her name and that she represents the United States. It's, it's a corny thing to say, but it's exciting to represent an idea like that, the notion of justice, even though you go into it knowing it's imperfect, the opportunity to represent the sovereign in that context is, it's exciting. Did you encourage your daughter to go into the family business, as it were? No, I didn't. (laughs) And I'm going to channel my wife in giving an honest answer to this. When she announced that she wanted to apply to be a federal prosecutor, I said to my wife, I hope that's going to go okay. I, I don't remember steering her, encouraging her in that regard. And my wife says, what are you, a moron? When she was a little girl, you were coming home from doing these cases, mob cases in New York, and you were aflame. Of course she was shaped by it. No, you didn't explicitly steer her, but she watched you and saw the reaction that you had to the work. And she's a lot like you, so it's natural. And the good news is that I was worried I would be that she'd be known as my daughter. And it's not an exaggeration to say she's so good that I'm actually known as her father now, which is a great place to be, great place to be. When you were in that, the AG's office, as a young man, you were working under Rudy Giuliani in his pomp. And, you know, he, he certainly, as you describe him, he was a figure of vanity and kind of some political ambition, but bit of considerable ability and acuity. And I remember being in New York in 2002 when he was, you know, he was a hero. I'm just wondering personally, what's your read on what's happened to him? I mean, he seems very strange these days, doesn't he? Yeah, I'd agree with that. He seems so different and so strange compared to my recollection. Maybe he would say the same about me. I don't know. But he, I don't know what it is, but the person, especially that I saw repeating Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 election is not the person, at least in my memory, I worked for and with. Despite the things you said, I could see his kind of I'm the emperor approach when I was, even when I was a young prosecutor, but something seems very, very different and off now. Have you had any dealings with him over the years since, or is it just a, he's someone you knew when you were younger? Yeah, I don't think I've, uh, it's been many, many years since I saw him or spoke to him, but it's, I, I see him the way you do, just in the media. And now this book, I don't want to give any spoilers to it, but it has what you could call a sort of semi-equivocal happy ending. There is a sense in which when people go beyond the realm of criminal justice and into politics, they sometimes, you know, get slightly away with things. Um, I mean, was, was there a sort of certain jadedness in your, your writing of that? I, I'm in the same place you are, I don't want to give anything away. But but I think one of the themes of the book is that truth and justice are different things, that, that you can know something to be true, but that doesn't mean you'll be able to hold an individual accountable for that conduct. And we've set up our system in both the UK and the States intentionally in that regard. The notion is that we set the burden of proof high enough that we recognize that guilty people will escape And we've done it that way so as not to have the cost of innocent people, which still happens, but the innocent people going to jail. And I'm not sure I fully got that as a young prosecutor. Then you come to see that sometimes you can know something and not be able to prove it in a courtroom. And that's both okay and 
frustrating. And so I've tried to capture some of that ambiguity and that tension. And is it your sense that the law itself, I, you know, not going further than the law into justice, that's the kind of absolute shining line for you? Yeah, that there are bright lines, chalk boundaries on a field, if I can use that metaphor, and that that you're out, and they are the law, and that you're out of bounds if you get a chalk on your shoes. Now, that's confusing for those who Americans may not realize that you can actually kick a ball while out of bounds. And so I, I guess I have to use an American football metaphor. If you touch the line, you're out of bounds, and the line represents the law. Your career in Washington went through a whole period of really, really difficult issues with those lines. And, and I was very interested to read when you were writing about your experience with the Bush administration. You say, you know, here are people who were very keen to get certain things done. They didn't care too much about getting them done in the right way. And that seems to be kind of theme for you. I mean, do you think that's essentially just the way politics is and that your job as a lawyer or your job as an FBI director is to be holding up that bright line? Yeah, I actually think it's broader than that. I think there's a tension in all institutions, whether private business or government agency, between the sort of the non-lawyer who wants to accomplish a goal and the lawyer who often has to say, look, I appreciate that, but there are lines that we can't cross. And so the lawyer's job is to try and articulate that clearly and then advise the client if the goal is legitimate, here's how you could achieve that goal while also abiding the, the boundaries, the lines on the field. And so I felt that tension in government. I also felt it as a general counsel of private companies trying to advise business leadership. I mean, it's clear that for a lot of your career, you know, you were wanting to keep your work as the FBI director or as, you know, as, a, as, as an investigator separate from politics. And you were obviously grieved and mortified at various points when you were dragged right into the centre of party politics over Hillary Clinton's emails and later over the Russian investigation. Obviously, you were kind of pissed off about that. But was that something priced in? Was it something you had to expect? Yeah, I think if you're a director of the FBI, you have to expect that your work, to some degree, and obviously I experienced sort of a maximum degree, but to some degree your work is going to be of interest to people who are political actors and that your work will be under a spotlight that where it's viewed through a political lens. And that's the has to be the obsession of the director of the FBI to try and navigate the institution in a political spotlight in a way that maintains trust and confidence in it, in the institution being apart from politics. So it's a bit of a paradox, right? You're, you, you have to accept that you are in the political arena, but you must not be of that arena in a way that jeopardizes the credibility of the institution. So it's a, it's a challenging uh, assignment. Well, I think you quote somebody saying that at the height of the, you know, you've closed the investigation into Hillary's emails, you've reopened it publicly. Somebody saying he's a political hack, but we don't know what side he's on. Right, that's right. And I think it's still true in America. It's, it's a sign of our polarization that there are people... Again, I'm not sure left and right makes sense in America today. It's very confusing. But who you would identify as traditionally at the left end of our bell curve, dislike me, not realizing that there's a group of people at the right end of the bell curve who also dislike me for the absolute opposite reason. They think I'm on the other team. One thinks of when the truth is that neither has it right, but they don't see each other's bubbles. So they have no sense of the diversity of those who have resentments. 
Did you, uh, do you think that's a sense you're getting it right? That if Maybe, but I, 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 I'm self-critical enough that I, I don't take consolation in the fact that both sides are angry at you because you could still be totally wrong and have everybody mad at you. But it, it makes it easier, I think, to say, as a director of the FBI, I just can't listen to this. And if the wind is blowing from both wings of our politics, in some ways that makes it easier to tune it out. Okay, we've been talking about Cosa Nostra, and one of the lines that's often trotted out on Trump is that he he behaved more like or thought more like a mafia boss than like a politician. You touch on that here and there in your memoir. Do you think that's justified? And if so, how would you describe the similarities? I think there's no doubt that he has a habit of speaking in the way that a Cosa Nostra boss would and did, in my experience, both in his indirect, uh, that's a nice shop you have there, be shame if someone burnt it down way of talking, and in the, in the way he speaks about loyalty and the importance of personal loyalty. That's the way a mob boss speaks and sees the world. And also his leadership style is very similar. It's entirely about what you can do for me, not any institution beyond me, but me personally. Every statement, every act has to be connected to the boss and what you're doing for the boss. And when I, this first popped in my head, I tried to suppress it because I thought I was being too dramatic. And I tried to, a little argument with myself saying, stop. And then the more I interacted with him, the more it kept coming back. And I was perceiving something real. And I think it's been seen more broadly since then. Other people have had the same reaction. When did it first pop in your head? First week of January of 2017, before he was president, when President Obama sent the leaders of intelligence agencies to go brief him on what we knew about the Russian effort to help elect him. Difficult conversation. Yeah, but I mean, you mentioned the so-called PP tape. That must have been kind of awkward. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually think I got to the uh, PP part. I described it more euphemistically, but it, it was a difficult conversation, and it was sitting there watching him interact with his staff when it, the image first popped into my head, and I tried to push it away. And you're certainly, if you, you know, you're most people believe your primary interest is in the norms and institutions, and he can't see them at all. I mean, was it just obviously apparent from very early on that this was a dramatic mismatch? Yes, I could see it clearly at the end of that same month, January of 2017, when I found myself sitting at a small table in the green room on the ground floor of the White House residence, having dinner alone with him, a dinner I expected was going to be a group dinner. And when he was literally asking for a pledge of loyalty, I knew then that he not only, I'm not sure he didn't appreciate the institutional interest that I, I thought had to be foremost. He just didn't care. And he wanted something from me that I couldn't give. Now, obviously, as anybody who's paid any attention to the news will know, that that kind of ended badly. And you were fired, well, you were on the television being fired before you even knew about it yourself. That's right. I learned from uh, watching news programs on TV without the volume on. Well, things certainly seem to have come home to roost a little from now. And obviously, for those of us who have no experience of prosecution, have no experience of the sort of classified material cases that you've spent a lot of your time working on, it's very hard for us to get a read on the present situation. You know, is this it, as people have been saying for so long? How do you read where we are now? I mean, we're speaking just a few days after the indictment of 34 counts has dropped. 
I would separate it into two different answers. First, my assessment of the criminal case, and then the harder one, which is the, is this it with respect to his role in American life? The one that's easier to answer is the assessment of the criminal case. It's a very strong case that will likely carry a recommended jail sentence where I see conviction as highly likely because of the way the special prosecutor has focused it, also given all of us the opportunity to really see his evidence. He produced what's called a speaking indictment. So it's all laid out there with pictures of files in the bathroom and whatnot. So anyone who reads it can get a sense of the case. Having done many of these cases, I see it as a really strong case, both because of the nature and volume of the material he was keeping and that he was obstructing justice. So the case is fairly easy to assess. What The second part, though, what will that mean for Donald Trump's role in our national life in the States? I don't know. And if I'd written this in a book proposal, I think it would have gotten rejected by a publisher. The idea that a presidential candidate and former president might be convicted, might be sentenced to jail, and still run as the nominee for one of the two major parties, and, and still have a non-zero chance of being elected president. That that script or that proposal would be rejected, and yet we live in that uh, script right now. Were you, were you surprised when, I mean, you know, obviously your direct interactions with the White House and that story ended in, I guess, 20, what was it, 2017? Yeah. Have you been sort of surprised by what's unfolded since? I mean, I presume you've been watching it with interest and not a little schadenfreude. I have not been surprised because of my sense that we were dealing with an utterly amoral leader and someone who simply didn't care where the boundaries were on the field and never even looked down at his shoes to see if he had gotten chalk on them or not, went where his hunger for affirmation took him in any given moment. So none of that surprises me. And I'm also not surprised as to where we are on the question of what will his political future be? Because I know how hard it is for people to escape a fraud. I've done fraud cases where the victim showed up to support the fraudster at his sentencing because it's hard enough for people to admit when they're wrong, all of us as humans. It is a really tall order to admit that you were not only wrong, but you were defrauded, fooled about something that really matters. So it's the reason so many Americans want a memory hold January the 6th, because those images whisper, you fool, you fool, look what you did. And very few people are strong enough to look at that and say, you're right, I was a fool, I was wrong. So most of them simply, it drives them deeper into the fraud. So I'm not surprised that Trump retains the, the allegiance among so many millions that he does. This is why our founders so feared the demagogue. And, but also remain optimistic, because I, I do think the system has passed major stress tests and will survive this the next set of tests. And to those who say um, Hillary Clinton mishandled classified information in that email server case, which, of course, you were absolutely at the heart of, and that Joe Biden kept you know, certain classified documents, is there any comparison there? No. Anyone who compares the Clinton case to this case is really not interested in a serious comparison. The nature and volume of the material here, the proof of obstructive conduct... Those were not elements present in the Clinton case. And I, I guess I don't know enough about the Joe Biden situation. There's a special counsel looking at it and hope we'll get transparency on that. But this is 
an entirely different situation than the Clinton case, and no serious person could compare them. Well, writing in a preface to the paperback edition of your memoir, which I think was 2019, you say, you know, when the great institutions of America kind of under attack, there's a, a pushback, the sleeping giant wakes up, and I think you, towards the end, liken it to a forest fire, you know, burns everything down, and then you get new growth, and it grows up stronger. You seem optimistic then. Are you still as optimistic now as you were then? I mean, in the sense that the forest fire still seems to be burning, and an awful lot of people see America as irredeemably polarised. Yeah, I'm still optimistic. And it may sound odd, even in the wake of January the 6th, but among the things we saw in the wake of the 2020 election was the American legal system passing an enormous stress test. Think of the avalanche of lies that were told, but it stopped at the courtroom door. It's 60-some cases where judges, some Democrats, some Republicans, opened the courtroom door and said, bring me your evidence. And there was none, and there were severe consequences for false statements. You can say what you want in front of whatever it is, four seasons total landscaping with <laughs> hair dye running down your face, but in an American courtroom, the culture is such and the rules are such that don't you dare... And so that system held at the city level, the county level, the state level, the federal level, in ways that we don't talk about enough in the states. And so I remain optimistic. I mean, Donald Trump has not expanded his voter base since 2020. And I know it's maybe it's a dark consolation, but it's been brought to mind a lot in the last few years, a remark that Secretary of State Seward made to Lincoln during the Civil War. Lincoln liked to repeat it, where Seward said something like, there's always enough virtue in America to save her. And then he added, but just enough. There's enough virtue in America to save her. We saw it in the 2020 election. We will see it again in 2024 if Donald Trump is the nominee. Now, I don't want to be all sunshiny because millions of Americans will still vote for Donald Trump, but the American people overall will not vote for Donald Trump. And there's enough virtue in America to save her. Doesn't mean America is not confusing to, to our British colleagues and frustrating, but it's, it will be fine. Well, that's encouraging. Now, you yourself, you just told me before the podcast started, you're writing another Nora Carlton thriller following on from this one. That one set you said in a hedge fund. Yes. Do you see yourself now as leading a, a calm, quiet life as a writer of mystery stories, or is there some return? that you could conceive? Would you ever think of entering the political arena yourself, for instance? No, never. I hope this will my, it'd be great if my future is calm <laughs> and quiet and allows me just to write and to play with my grandchildren. That brings great joy to my life. I have no interest in returning to public life. And really, I shouldn't to lead an institution like the FBI because I intentionally became a partisan. I believed that I had to speak out after I was fired because I saw the threat I don't fully understand why more of those who'd been up close and seen Trump didn't speak out, but I couldn't look my children or grandchildren in the eye if I didn't speak. And so I became a partisan in a way that a leader of a justice institution shouldn't be. So I, even if I were inclined to go back, which I'm not, you shouldn't have me. And so I'll be very happy living a life outside. No, I'm not, sorry, to, not, not back to the FBI, but I was meaning, would you consider political office? Oh, definitely not. No, no, not your thing. Not, no, it doesn't fit me. I'm glad good people do it, but I, it's not who I am. So no, it's a hard no. James Comey, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks for having me.